from deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, what's the worst job in the world? Don't mention lobsters and Jane Mansfield now. The, I'll give you a clue. It involves leading a nation of people. You want to guess which people? Mr. Wells over there in the corner. Uh, the French. No, it's not the French. It's Afghans. Yes, it's news of Afghan. President Ashraf Ghani of Afghanistan says of his job, this is the worst job on earth, he says in an interview with the BBC. His country has been at war for almost 16 years, says the BBC. I guess they're ignoring the other wars that preceded it. It's been about 50 years now. But he's surprisingly bullish about how long the country will continue to require the support of NATO and the United States. The troops will be able to pull out within four years, he says. Most military analysts consider that optimistic. It's only three years since the NATO combat mission ended and the Afghan military took responsibility for the battle. About 14,000 NATO troops remain in the country just to hang. It's a good hang. No, to train, advise, and assist Afghan forces, to strengthen them so they can take the battle to the Taliban, says Ghani of that period. We were like 12-year-olds taking on the responsibility of a 30-year-old, but we really grew in the process. I guess the nation has a very active pituitary gland. Now, in terms of management and leadership, things are really falling into place, he says. Within four years, we think our security forces would be able to do the constitutional thing, which is the claim of legitimate monopoly of power, unquote. He does think some foreign troops will hang after that. It's part of the global fight against terrorism. But asked whether, a BBC reporter asked whether the Afghan forces have turned the corner. I guess there's no tunnel. Turned the corner in the fight against the Taliban? Yes, he says. Latest figures from the U.S. military show the Afghan government controls less than two-thirds of its country. The rest is either controlled or contested by the Taliban and other militant groups. Yes, there's more militancy than just the Taliban there. Last year, Afghanistan lost 10% of its entire fighting force. 7,000 Afghan soldiers were killed. Another 12,000 were injured. Many thousands more deserted. One reason the Afghan president is so confident, he believes the West doesn't really understand the true nature of the conflict. His government isn't fighting a civil war. It's a drug war. Taliban is the largest exporters of heroin to the world. Why is the world not focusing on heroin? Is this an ideological war or is this a drug war? The criminalization of the Afghan economy needs to be addressed, he says. The ultimate aim? A peace agreement with the Taliban, he says, without hesitation. Guess he wants some of that drug money. So uh, President Ghani of Afghanistan says U.S. troops will be all gone in four years. What does that remind me of? Oh, Vice President Biden in 2011. We're starting this process just like we did in Iraq. We're starting it in July of 2011, and we're going to be totally out of there come hell or high water by 2014. Well, I guess there was neither hell nor high water. Hello, welcome to the show.
From London, England, I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show, which is being recorded about four days before you hear it, because I'm off traveling to some place where the um, internet is even less reliable, possibly, than in my home of New Orleans. So, um, just to be on the safe side, this is this is a, um, as they like to say in the broadcasting industry, a pre-recorded broadcast. You know, you can't post-record. Well, you could. I get. I'm, I'm not even going to go there. But here's where I am going to go to that smart house. Well, your house was about to get smarter in the kids' room, and uh, that's not going to happen. Mattel, the giant toy enterprise, said this week it's not going to move forward with plans to sell a kid-focused smart hub. New executives decided it didn't fully align with Mattel's new technology strategy. Children's health and privacy advocates petitioned the toy, toy giant not to release the advice, uh, not to release the device, which they argued gave the firm an unprecedented look into the private lives of children. What do we tell the children? Speaking to the microphone, in a statement, Mattel said it had decided not to take the product to market after a new chief technology officer, Sven Gurgitz, joined the company a couple months ago. He reviewed the product and decided not to bring Aristotle to the marketplace as part of an ongoing effort to deliver the best possible connected product experience to the consumer. Aristotle was designed for the child's room. It could switch on a nightlight to soothe the crying baby. I don't think it could uh, place the pacifier in the baby's mouth. It was also designed to keep changing its activities to the point where it could help a preteen with homework. Along the way, the device would be learning about the child. Objections were twofold. For one, the existence of a home hub for kids raised questions about data privacy for a vulnerable population. Not like us grown-ups. We can take care of our own privacy, can't we? Huh? What? What'd you say? It also triggered broader concerns about how quickly companies are marketing products to parents without understanding how technology can affect early childhood development. Yeah, but it keeps them quiet. Mattel had said it would protect the Aristotle data with high-level encryption and would not sell that information to advertisers in compliance with children's data privacy laws. Of course, those laws can be changed. But privacy concerns weren't the only issue. My main concern about this technology is the idea that a piece of technology becomes the most responsive household member to a crying child, a child who wants to learn, or a child's play ideas, said Jennifer Radeski, a pediatrician who wrote the American Association of Pediatrics Media Guidelines for Children 0 to 6 Years of Age. Aristotle would have been one of many products firms are marketing to make the parenting world more high-tech. Of course, kids' tablets and so forth. They're smart cradles that can rock your baby for you. There's a smart cushion to calm colicky infants by cradling them while playing a recording that mimics a parent's heartbeat. Yours? You know, a parent's. Maybe a parent elephant. Experts say little is known about the effects of tech devices on early childhood development. It'll take time to figure that out. But meantime, raise the kid. Last year, Mattel faced similar pushback from those worried about the surveillance possibilities of Hello Barbie, a talking version of the classic doll that learns about its human playmates by recording their voices over time via Wi-Fi. What could go wrong? 
Through play sessions, the doll learns facts such as the name of the family dog, then incorporates this information into conversation. The thought that a doll would be slowly collecting information on a child found many privacy advocates calling it creepy. The product didn't sell well at launch after poor reviews. So we're not racing headlong into this stuff yet. And technologies such as Bluetooth Low Energy, BLE, have allowed an increasing number of devices to be controlled by mobile devices. As Ars Technica reported in the past, BLE devices can also be a privacy and security risk. Alex Lomas of a security firm, found recently that some of these vulnerable devices are of a very personal nature. Parents, turn off the radio now for your if your kid is not being smartly attended. Lomas discovered he could relatively easily search for and hijack BLE-enabled sex toys. He performed a security analysis on a number of BLE-enabled sex toys, including the Lovens Hush a BLE-connected butt plug designed to allow control by the owner's smartphone or remotely from a partner's phone via the mobile app. Using a Bluetooth dongle and antenna, Lomas was able to intercept and capture the transmissions between the devices and their associated applications. Reverse engineering the control messages between apps and a number of devices was not difficult. The communications between the apps and the toys were not encrypted and could be easily recorded with a capture tool, They could easily be also replayed by an attacker since the devices accepted pairing requests without any kind of code, allowing anyone to take over control of them. That sounds like plenty of dark fun, doesn't it? The BLE, the Bluetooth Low Energy. They're low energy. What could be? How could you? It's low energy. Beacons of these devices also make them particularly vulnerable to remote detection. The hush in particular is vulnerable to tracking as every hush has the same Bluetooth device name, making it easy to spot one while scanning. Lomas also looked at the other end of the scan of the uh, anatomy. He looked at a BLE-configured hearing aid owned by his father that uses Bluetooth to allow the wearer to have music played directly into the hearing aid and allows an audiologist to remotely adjust the settings. He found the hearing aid had the same sort of vulnerability, leaving it open to manipulation by an attacker that could disable it requiring the settings to be fixed by an audiology or cause discomfort to the wearer. I guess that could be caused with the other device too, but who knows? And on a related subject, it's time for me to read the trades for you. From Digital Trends, your hotel stay could soon involve a smart room. <laughs> it does go on, as do I, and I will. I'll read it for you. If you live in a smart home already, why shouldn't you stay in a smart room when you visit a hotel? Asks Digital Trends. Big assumption, but you know what happens. One day soon, even your home away from home could be of the smart variety at the Skift Global Forum in New York last week. Hilton's CEO, Christopher Nassetta, previewed a new concept that the global hotel brand is currently experimenting with. Soon, your Hilton room could be a smart room. 
capable of automatically adjusting the temperature to your predetermined liking, playing your favorite television shows without you asking, and chilling your beverage of choice in the refrigerator. Nasetta said, quote, Imagine a world where the room knows you and you know your room. Such a room, of course, depends upon a computer system that links a guest's preferences to the various appliances found in a standard hotel suite. It could be rolling out in the next year or so. Make your reservations now. Some hotels are already designed with modernization in mind, like the Yotel brand, which features a robotic luggage handler, adjustable smart beds, and other futuristic connected devices. But other legacy brands have been slower to embrace the modernization of home technology. Hilton, for example, though, has ventured into the smart space before by way of an app-based messaging service that helps visitors find local activities that are specific to their interests. Starwood brought a smart mirror to some of its locations last year. (laughs) What the heck would that be? While the Peninsula Chicago added tablets that allow for personalization to all of its rooms. And of course, hotels can bring Alexa from Amazon into their rooms by the way of the Echo. In order for hotels to stay competitive with other lodging offerings like Airbnb, it's likely they will have to begin offering more high-tech amenities proving they have at least the semblance of a leg up on short-term rentals. After all, while an Airbnb host might have an echo dot on his or her her bedside table, it's more difficult and expensive to establish an entirely connected home setup for just a few guests a year. Well, that's the good news. Hotels get a leg up on Airbnb if they go smart. What we see is uh, when we look into the smart mirror of the future, ladies and gentlemen, as I read the trades for you, copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now let's check up on our freedom-loving friends in Saudi Arabia. We, uh, we, the United States, have joined Saudi Arabia in voting against a United Nations resolution condemning the death penalty for having gay sex. The vote did pass. America joined China, Iraq, (laughs) and Saudi Arabia in opposing the move. The Human Rights Council resolution had condemned the imposition of the death penalty as a sanction for specific forms of conduct, such as apostasy, blasphemy, adultery, and consensual same-sex relations. attacked the use of execution against persons with mental or intellectual disabilities, you know, like morons, persons below 18 years of age at the time of the commission of the crime and pregnant women. It also expressed, quote, serious concern that the application of the death penalty for adultery is disproportionately imposed on women. The U.S. supported two failed amendments put forward by Russia, which stated the death penalty was not necessarily a human rights violation and that it is not a form of torture but can lead to it, quote, in some cases. And it abstained on a sovereignty amendment put forward by our freedom-loving friends that stated, quote, the right of all countries to develop their own laws and penalties. The International Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Trans, and Intersex Association branded the amendments an attempt to dilute its impact. 
Despite U.S. opposition and that of Saudi Arabia, the vote in Geneva passed with 27 of the 47 member Human Rights Council in its favor. There are currently six countries where the death penalty is used for people in same-sex relations. Iran, Saudi Arabia, Sudan, Yemen, Nigeria, and Somalia. Now, there are five countries allow it technically, but it's not actually used in reality. Reality. The State Department spokesperson, not Rex Tillerson, he was busy otherwise, uh, told a British newspaper, the headlines reporting and press releases on this issue are misleading. As our representative to the council said in Geneva, the United States is disappointed to have to vote against this resolution. We had hoped for a balanced and inclusive resolution that would better reflect the position of states that continue to apply the death penalty lawfully, as the United States does. The United States voted against this resolution because of broader concerns with the resolution's approach in condemning the death penalty in all circumstances and calling for its abolition. The United States unequivocally condemns the application of the death penalty for conduct such as homosexuality, blasphemy, adultery, and apostasy. Also opposing the resolution were Botswana, Burundi, Egypt, Ethiopia, Bangladesh, China, India, Iraq, Japan, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates. I think we're in good company. And now... News of the Olympic Movement. Produced by Jim Ebersall Jr. Deadline Tokyo, Tokyo 2020 Olympic organizers say the tests showed levels of E. coli up to 20 times above the accepted limit and fecal coliform bacteria seven times higher than agreed at the planned venue for marathon swimming and triathlon. Organizers have vowed to improve the water quality to ensure the safety of athletes, including through installing underwater screens to limit the amount of fecal coliform bacteria flowing from offshore during rainy periods. They also said they would consider amending event dates and times during the games in response to weather conditions. We'll take the best possible measures to make sure that the venue satisfies all relevant standards of international federations and that athletes can can perform at their very best, feeling safe, feeling very safe, said the director of Tokyo 2020 Sports. Tests carried out during 26 days between July and September showed that water quality standards set by the International Federations were met on only 10 days for marathon swimming and just six days for triathlon. That would be two days for every event in the triathlon. Look how I did that. For example, the quantity of fecal coliforms tested on one day as high as 7,200 per 100 milliliters. Tom? Milliliters. Well above the limit of 1,000 per 100 milliliters, agreed by the International Swimming Federation. Meanwhile, Escherichia coli, E. coli, tested as high as 5,300 per 100 milliliter, compared with the International Triathlon Union's ceiling of 250, according to the Tokyo Organizing Committee. The uh, coliforms come from human and animal waste, and a large amount could indicate illness-causing bacteria is also present, while some strains of E. coli can cause illness. Tokyo officials laid much of the blame on a near-record 21 straight days of rain in August, saying the water quality at the water park varies significantly depending on the weather. 
and expressed confidence confidence they could control the situation. Not the weather. Surely. Surely not. Meanwhile, Olympic athletes hoping to live it up at the 2020 Games may be in for a disappointment in an attempt to save funds. The International Olympic Committee says it will consider reviewing the level of service provided at the athlete's village. We're putting a number of questions to those National Olympic Committees as to how we think we can find savings by reducing to an acceptable level the level of service in the Olympic Village. The uh, vice president of the IOC, John Coase, said he'd already submitted a request to 28 National Olympic Committees to comment on the proposal, including such ideas as shortening the length of time uh, Olympic athletes are allowed to stay. Right now, they can stay in the accommodations for the entire span of the Games, even after they finish competing. The IOC is asking the national committees to make beds transferable, which would mean shuffling athletes or team staff out early to make room for those who might be competing later in the Games. Olympic committees might receive some financial compensation to give up some beds, Coates said. Already, the Athletes' Village in 2020 won't be the same as in recent years. McDonald's, which has famously provided free food to athletes since 1996, has ended its Olympic sponsorship following the 2018 Winter Games. Other healthier food options are also provided. McDonald's proved one of the more popular providers, apparently fueling Usain Bolt's first Olympic treble in 2008. He claimed he ate hundreds of McNuggets as he raced to three gold medals. Other amenities at past athletes' villages included a beauty salon, a barbershop, a grocer, a dry cleaners, and a forest. Florists, it feels a little like a mini college town, said a Team USA tennis player. Coates did not make clear any other possible cuts the IOC is considering because the Olympics is a movement, and we all need one every day. Like cutting back the perks available to members of the IOC when they visit the Olympics. Take it from me, I was at the Olympics in London. They got plenty perks. And now, news of the warm, won't you? Copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Soft, listen to the warm. We can listen to the warm. Here's some good news. Norway's wealth was built on mostly pumping fossil fuels out of the ground. One of Norway's sovereign wealth funds is also known as the oil fund. But now, with global warming raising an alarm to some, the Norwegian government wants to find ways of making money by putting the resulting carbon dioxide emissions back under the ground. Norway has been slowly building the capacity and technology to make it work, according to Quartz. In 1991, the government levied levied a a carbon tax on fossil fuels. Since then, it has slowly expanded the tax tax to cover other sources that produce carbon dioxide. In 1996, to avoid heavy taxes, Statoil, the country's national oil and gas company, began capturing CO2 emissions from its natural gas processing and pumping them into empty gas fields. Oh, I got one of those right now. The technology called Carbon Capture and Storage, CCS, had been around for decades. Years ago, oil companies found a way to pump CO2 into mature oil fields and use the process to eke out any remaining oil through what's called enhanced oil recovery. It's it's like torture for oil. But Statoil's CO2 Sleipner gas field storage project was the first effort to pump carbon dioxide underground for no other reason than to ensure it doesn't end up in the atmosphere. In 2008, the company started another storage project in another gas field. Between these two, they put more than 1 million metric tons of carbon dioxide into the ground every year, having captured a total of 20 million metric tons 
as of this year. Now the Norwegian government has tasked the state-owned enterprise Gasnova with a project to bury even more carbon dioxide than it already does. Even if Norway cuts down on fossil fuel use through converting all the cars to electric ones and not driving them out of town, oh, that's just the Tesla, and shutting down gas-fired power stations, some industries have no other option but to keep emitting greenhouse gas. The new Gasnova project will attempt to alleviate that environmental impact by capturing carbon dioxide from an ammonia factory, a cement factory, and a waste-to-energy plant, all located in the Oslo vicinity. Then Gasco, a Norwegian company that transports gas, will build pipelines, transport the CO2 to an offshore site where Stott Oil, along with Shell and Total, another oil company, will inject it in geological storage. More importantly, Gasnova believes there may be enough space under the Norwegian continental shelf for others to ship their CO2 to Norway. That would have there would be a little cost involved. It's too early to estimate what it might be. If the price is too high, of course, nobody's going to take it up. Anything that involves injecting fluids underground carries risks, but a 2017 study by researchers at Princeton shows the chances of carbon dioxide leaking out from deep storage is minimal. You know, it's not like tritium. News of the warm, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. An interesting week for <laughs> President Trump. The uh, He went, he, he had, of course, angered certain people in Puerto Rico, have, having a little tiff with the mayor of uh, San Juan, getting along better with the governor of Puerto Rico as he went down, did the president, <laughs> the president uh, for a visit to the island uh, territory where three and a half million United States citizens live. Uh, the president smiled and said, hey, great job uh, missing all the areas where, you know, they don't have electricity or phone service or Internet or free delivery from Walmart yet. Uh, and then, of course, the uh, massacre in Las Vegas had the president, uh, <laughs> the president going there as well this week, uh, all taking attention away from what he wants to be talking about, which is tax reform, uh, supposedly. Also attracting possibly unwanted attention for the administration, a report this week by NBC News that in a uh, in mounting tension involving Secretary of State Rex Tillerson as to whether or not he's even going to stay in the administration, uh, mounting pressure on him, apparently, mounting dissatisfaction with him on the part of President Trump, mounting dissatisfaction with President Trump on the part of Rex Tillerson, climaxing, pardon me, in July when he apparently, according to a couple of sources, said in a meeting at the Pentagon that uh, President Trump was, quote, an effing moron, unquote. Tillerson this week had a press conference, never denied saying that, denied saying he ever wanted to leave the job as Secretary of State. Um, later, his press secretary said that uh, he'd never, he would never say something like that. Um, all of it uh, piling up uh, for the president. And it was a week also where, for the second time, late night show host Jimmy Kimmel uh, scrapped comedy monologues to speak seriously to his audience. The first time was uh, during the health care reform debate when the uh, issue of his son prompted him to make an emotional 
set of remarks on the subject. Uh, this time, the source of his emotional tie to the massacre in Las Vegas apparently was that he was born and raised in Las Vegas. Uh, and he wasn't the only one, not, not the only one born and raised in Las Vegas, but other talk, late night talk show hosts, uh, Trevor Noah and Conan O'Brien also, and Stephen Colbert, also jumped on the uh, wagon of scrapping comedy monologues for serious monologues on the subject of the Vegas massacre and, of course, whether America's gun laws are a little bit out of whack. Raising the question, not begging it, just raising it, um, if the late-night guys aren't going to do comedy monologues, who will? Question answered moments from now here on the show. Nobody wins this race we run This hedonistic marathon Where creature comforts offer none We're either drunk or thirsty We take it with a grain of salt the haves and the have-nots gestalt It's always someone else's fault Have a little mercy With such impressive pedigrees Coordinating refugees But who Foes with friends like these We cut and then we curtsy We sit here on the tallest stack Begrudging these few things we lack But who will make us give them back
what history can't be undone The race for peace can still be won Tell me who will the first be Nobody blinks, nobody bends As each destroys what each defends Chris Wallace. Welcome to Fox News Sunday. We'll get to our guests, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson and the Governor of Puerto Rico in a moment. But first, some personal thoughts. I don't want to prejudge what Secretary of State Tillerson is going to tell me But our sources say the story going around this week was, in fact, fake news. That the Secretary of State was misquoted in an angry rant at the Pentagon in July. According to these sources, what Secretary Tillerson actually said at that Pentagon meeting is that he thought President Trump is an effing Mormon. (laughs) You know, sometimes people who were fans of my dad, Mike Wallace... (laughs) Those are the folks who came here today via mobility scooter. (laughs) But seriously, they ask how I differ from my very famous father. Well, it's really simple. In his years at 60 Minutes, he did stories exposing sexual harassers and war profiteers. Me, I just work for them. (laughs) No, I knew Roger Ailes well. Of course, he's the man who hired me for this job. I'll never forget what he told me. He said, Chris, you're a chip off the old block. We tried to hire the block. We had to settle for the chip. (laughs) You know, President Trump has had a rough week. Really. He had to go to Puerto Rico to look at the damage. Then he had to go to Las Vegas to look at the damage. Then he had to go to the White House. I'm here all week. (laughs) I don't know if you saw this. The bipartisan chairs of the Senate Intelligence Committee held a press conference this week. Among their announcements, they haven't been able to interview the author of the famous so-called Dirty Dossier, the former spy Christopher Steele. Apparently, he's still enjoying a shower. The committee wants to find out if he knows that all that glitters is not golden. Thank you. You know, this was interesting. The Nobel Prize for Physics went to three scientists who made the first ever observation of a gravitational wave. True to the 100-year-old theory of Albert Einstein, it was caused by crowds on distant stars raising their arms in unison. (laughs) You know, we've got some great guests this morning. 
Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell was going to join us, too. But he got some bad news overnight. According to his doctors, his chin has receded another two inches. <laughs> we also reached out to House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi, but she got right back up. <laughs> Let's see what else is going on. The baseball playoffs are here. It's a great time for Fox, which has some of the playoffs and the World Series, which means that the brand new shows on this network won't have to flop until November. <laughs> you know, one of the new comedies on the Fox network is highly anticipated. It's called The Ghosted, about President Trump's teleprompter. There's also a missing persons-themed show coming up. In the first episode, they try to locate Kellyanne Conway. And our sister network, the Fox News Channel, is preparing its first cooking special. Sean Hannity will show his favorite ways of preparing raw meat. We have a great show for you. Coming up right after messages from these fine defense contractors. So stay with us. Thank you.
Now, the apologies of the week. Just like that. So sorry. Google and Facebook have apologized. What do you think? After their algorithms led to the promotion of inaccurate information about the Las Vegas shooting. Posts from a 4chan message board that falsely identified the gunman as an individual who was not involved were circulated online. Google says the posts only appeared in its top story section if users searched for the erroneous name. Facebook said it took the posts down within minutes. The problem occurred when users began speculating about the identity of the gunman on 4chan, a controversial anonymous message board. The users named an individual on the politically incorrect message board, claiming the person was a far-left loon. Tom? A far-left loon. The comments were picked up by several blogs and news sites, including an article by the right-wing political website, The Gateway Pundit. Many users then searched for the erroneous name on Google. The algorithm traced the original source of the story back to the 4chan message board and posted a link to it in the top stories section. Unfortunately, early this morning, we were briefly surfacing an inaccurate 4chan website in our search results for a small number of queries, said Google. Google said only a small number of search queries were made for the name, which suggests not many people would have seen the 4chan link. Despite Facebook's efforts to remove hyperlinks to the stories, users had made screenshots of the incorrect story and continued to circulate these images online, which were harder to detect and take down. We are working to fix the issue that allowed this to happen in the first place and deeply regret the confusion this caused, said Facebook. Both tech giants have announced measures to fight inaccurate news in the last few months. They uh, are much bigger than any media company now, but they insist they're not publishers, that they're merely platforms, and as platforms, they don't need to take responsibility for their content, said Tim Luckhurst, head of Kent University Center for Journalism. Governments create laws that allow broadcasters and newspapers to be sued, so it's up to the government to stand up to these websites and say that if anything relating to terrorism or false information is published, they can be sued, he said. He pointed out in the past, both Google and Facebook had been quick to tweak their algorithms when requested to do so by the Chinese government. The pastor of one of Alabama's largest churches apologized last Sunday for a remark he made the previous week in which he said, if, quote, if you don't like it, you can get on a boat and sail away in reference to honoring the U.S. flag. The Reverend Kevin Ham, senior pastor of the 8,700-member Gardendale First Baptist Church since 2006, said, I had absolutely no idea that somehow that could be construed as offensive during an apology last Sunday. When that flag is raised or they sing or play that national anthem, you owe it to the men and women who have given their life's blood to protect their freedom to stand in honor of it, he said in his previous remarks the week earlier. In his apology, Ham said he'd received complaints from two precious people who were offended and noted that maybe others were offended. I don't want to give the enemy any cause for any division whatsoever, he said. I believe in honoring our flag and national anthem, but we don't worship the flag or America, but we do honor them. I never dreamed a statement could be offensive. I'm ignorant of that, and please forgive me. I'm so sorry if that hurt you. If, apology file. Captain America star Sebastian Stan, who issued an apology after sharing a meme comparing the 1994 ice skating controversy between Nancy Kerrigan and Tonya Harding to the Take a Knee movement. 
The actor shared a since-deleted meme on his Instagram last week. Instagram last week of Har- Hardy and Kerrigan sitting next to each other and said, "Back when taking a knee meant taking a knee." <laughs> the meme re- referenced the 1994 events that inspired his upcoming film, I Tonya. Isn't that a coincidence? No. Listen, guys, I'm sorry. I recognize the bad timing of my post, and I truly apologize to anyone who may have been offended by it, he said in one of his uh, apologies. One of his apologies. It was in reference to an actual event that took place in 1994, which is now depicted in the movie I'm currently promoting. Nothing more. But nothing less. Richard Smith, the former CEO of Equifax, who resigned from the credit ratings agency last month, apologized this week for the company's massive data breach that left the sensitive information of 145 million people exposed to hackers. We at Equifax clearly understood that the collection of American consumer information and data carries with it enormous responsibility to protect that data, he told the House Commerce Subcommittee. We did not live up to that responsibility, and I'm here today to apologize to the American people, myself, and on behalf of the board, the management team, and the company's employees, like they had anything to do with it. Tuesday's hearing was the first in a series of capital, always doing a, a, a Capitol Hill apology tour. Isn't that nice? Speaking of which, a different Wells Fargo chief executive met a similar kind of anger from Congress on Tuesday. Politicians from both major parties saying they feel the bank has done little to change its culture since a scandal over its sales practices. Tim Sloan appeared in front of the Senate Banking Committee about a year since his predecessor did the same to try to explain how employees trying to meet ambitious sales goals created millions of fake accounts without customers knowing about or authorizing them. Sloan apologized again and said the bank was committed to its customers. Some lockmakers weren't in a forgiving mood. Sloan says he remains deeply sorry for Wells Fargo's previous sales practices. He was at times combative and defensive, in particular, he strongly defended Wells Fargo's practice of sending its customers into forced arbitration when you have to use a third party to resolve the disputes in secret instead of filing a class action lawsuit with others where the result is on the public record. The sales practices scandal was the biggest in Wells Fargo's history, like they have a history of scandals. Hmm. When then-CEO John Stumpf faced Congress last fall, he was stumped. I mean, he was chastised for his answers and for what lawmakers saw as an attempt to shift blame. He was eventually ousted. Since last fall, Wells has changed its sales practices, ousted other executives, and called tens of millions of customers to check on whether they really opened the accounts that are there in their names. We're just calling to see if you really opened an account, and if not, would you like to? I apologize for the damage done to all the people who work and bank at this important American institution, Sloan said. The scandal has only grown in the year since Stumpf's appearance. The bank says now up to three and a half million fake accounts were opened up from the two million it acknowledged last year. The board of directors reported that bad behavior could be traced back to as early as 2002 and that executives were aware of some problems as early as 2006. And then there was a new scandal. Wells Fargo admitted it signed up hundreds of thousands of auto loan customers for car insurance they didn't need. Some of them had their cars repossessed because they couldn't afford both the auto loan and insurance payments. But, but he, he's, he's sorry. Dateline Manchester, England. Theresa May, Prime Minister of Great Britain, apologized to the Conservative Party this week for June's general election campaign that saw her party lose their majority, an election she called when she didn't have to. She admitted the Brexit talks have been frustrating. In her closing speech to the party's annual conference, in which the prime minister struggled with a cough and a sore throat and was bedeviled by a prankster handing her a pink slip, a P45 form, as a joke, she began with a frank concession of the election campaign's failings. 
British comedian Steve Coogan is going to receive a six-figure sum in damages from Mirror Group newspapers after admitted to unlawful phone hacking. Publisher Trinity Mirror said it had no comment on the case, but lawyers for Mirror Group, which is part of Trinity Mirror, said the group had apologized. The lawyer admitted Coogan was the target of unlawful activities and they were concealed until years later. MGM apologizes to Mr. Coogan and accepts that he and other victims should not have been denied the truth for so long. Unquote. Most of the money would be distributed to good causes, Coogan said. Apparently the rest of the money will be devoted to bad causes. The Apologies of the Week, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Now, news of Nice Corp. Nice people doing nice things. Rupert Murdoch has stepped up his attack on tech companies such as Google and Facebook. Oh, my God. They're getting it from everywhere, even from Roop, over their increasingly dominant market position. Yeah, he doesn't like those. Which is eating into the revenues of traditional publishers such as Nice Corp and undermining their business model. He uh, vowed to continue to contest the abuse of the marketplace by some big tech companies wherever possible. This was in a message to shareholders. He said tech giants were using their dominance to the detriment of many. Many Murdochs, I guess, would be. News Corp. Income tumbled to uh, $643 million, to a loss of $643 million in this year, financial year, after a $235 million profit in 2016. Well, you'd think that... Uh, when your company goes from uh, profit to loss, you uh, get paid less money. But no, Rupert Murdoch's compensation for his role as executive chairman of Nice Corp amounted to 5.7 for the recent fiscal year compared with 5.3 a year earlier. He got a raise, contrary to what happened at his other company, 21st Century Fox, which is doing great, where he got a, a um, reduced reduction in pay, as you heard on last week's broadcast. And bizarre advertisements for Fox Sports 1 caught the attention of many taking the subway in New York this week. Pictures of New York Knicks players were featured on the sides of the train next to the word hopeless. On the train, there was a sign that said, sit here if you're hopeless, while another said, the high point of the last 25 years was the movie Eddie. That's a film of almost 21 years ago where Whoopi Goldberg is named as the Knicks coach, the New York Knicks basketball team. A third seat had something printed on it saying, nothing will change until Dolan said, sells the team. And uh, that's a reference to Nick's owner, James Dolan. It caught his attention. He was furious and called Rupert Murdoch to complain. The campaign was supposed to last four weeks, according to Rupert Murdoch's own New York Post, but came to a premature end after Dolan's complaint. Fox bosses found themselves, quote, dealing with a blank storm internally, according to an industry source. If you post something like this, you have to expect Dolan's wrath. The Knicks haven't won a championship since the 1970s. That's a while ago. Knocking the Knicks. Nice people. Doing nice things. Finally, uh, one note from Inspectors General. Medicare paid at least a billion and a half dollars over a decade to replace seven types of defective heart devices. The devices apparently failed for thousands of senior patients. The Officer of Inspector General at the Department of Health and Human Services says officials need to do a better job tracking these costly product failures to protect patients from harm. More detailed reporting could lead to earlier recognition of serious problems with medical devices that get inserted into the human body and faster recalls of all types of poorly performing ones. 
This is the first effort by anyone in government to uh, figure out how much the taxpayers lost and patients 65 and older lost to medical gear that proves faulty. The uh, 1.5 million lost from seven devices from 2005 through 2014 was a conservative estimate. Patients also paid $140 million in out-of-pocket costs for this care. Nearly 73,000 people on Medicare had one of the seven devices replaced because of recalls, premature failures, medically necessary upgrades, please upgrade now, or infections. It didn't outline specific injuries patients suffered. As a result, the manufacturers were not identified, but uh, the devices included implanted cardio defibrillators and a pacemaker that either was recalled because of flaws or had, quote, prematurely failed. No, there's a right time for those devices to fail, don't you know? I think it's after the patient uh, leaves this mortal coil. The inspector general recommended that hospitals and doctors be required to submit detailed information identifying failed devices, such as serial and batch numbers, during the billing process. Yeah, that's that would be, you would think, maybe they would, they don't. News of the Inspectors General, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. That's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over the same stations over NPR worldwide throughout Europe. The USN 440 cable system in Japan, around the world through the facilities of the American Forces Network, up and down the east coast of North America via the shortwave giant WBCQ, the planet 7.49 megahertz shortwave, on the mighty 104 in Berlin, on Soho Radio in London, around the world via the internet at two different locations live and archived, harryshearer.com and kcsn.org. And available for your smartphone through Stitcher.com and available as a free podcast from Sideshow Network, SoundCloud, TuneIn.com, iTunes, and WWNO.org. And it'd be just like those hospitals and doctors putting those serial and batch numbers on the billing forms if you'd agree to join with me then. Would you already? Thank you very much. Uh Uh-huh. Just for this program. A playlist of the music heard here on your chance to get Cars I Talk t shirts. Think of it. All at harryshearer.com. And me, I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shearer, tip of the show chapeau, by the way, to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago in exile, and Hawaii dust. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans' flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from London Town.